Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We're getting some momentum with the developing story, Sherry. That's great. Some people are showing some interest, and we're getting some things organized with Catherine's. With Catherine's. Only one Catherine, singular. We're getting things organized with Catherine. We've got some some dates we're looking at to go ahead and launch these sessions. For listeners who don't know what I mean when I reference The Developing Story, it's our newest program. It is for teens who have experienced an alcoholic household at, at least some point in their upbringing, and it is a writing group, and it's going to be run by our daughter, Catherine Salis. If you haven't had a chance to listen to her episode, check out episode 200 of the Untoxicated Podcast. Now, I don't want to overblow it, Sherry. It's not like people are beating down the door, or my favorite thing people say uh, in this new internet age, you know, new internet age, God, do I sound old. My favorite thing people say, you know, my inbox is full, or my inbox is blowing up, or they're blowing up my phone. I kind of can't. I should have some caffeine. Um, So it's not like that, where the response has not been overwhelming. We haven't done a lot of promoting yet either. But uh, so here we are talking about it. If you have a teenager who has experienced alcohol in the household, and you think they might get a lot out of a writing group, where we give a writing prompt and then uh, they write a little bit about their experiences and share in a safe environment with uh, a 21-year-old moderator, not a 50-year-old moderator like me, um, or a slightly more than 50-year-old moderator like you. Happy birthday, by the way. Did you have a good birthday week? It was good. Yeah. Good. Thank you. I think you need some caffeine, too. <laughs> Sitting docilely over there across the microphone for me. No, I'm good. How about a listener question? Sure. Okay, I didn't uh, base this... Oh, if you are interested in The Developing Story, go to thedevelopingstory.org. More information, and you can express your interest there, and we'll be in touch. So, And if you'd like to submit your own listener question, if you're wondering about something you think Sherry and I can address, please send that to matt at soberandunashamed.com. So this listener question is ironically addressed to me, Sherry, and I say that because you seem like you'd be just perfectly happy just sitting there and not talking right now. Most of the time you do the talking, so oh. I'm just going to let you answer this oh, That makes me feel bad. <laughs> Teasing. Matt. Well, I mean, you know all about the, you're the one that's re- filtering through the inbox more so than I am for the developing story, so I'll just let you answer those questions and say that stuff. Well, this question isn't about the developing story. It says, Matt, I know you could tell Sherry wasn't into it. And in the subject line of her email was the word intimacy. So I think she's talking about sex. Matt, I know you could tell Sherry wasn't into it. Did this cause you to drink more, feeling rejected and unwanted? Did you use it against her and gaslight her? It's a great question. It made me think immediately of this little phrase that often comes to mind, the rejection inherent in consent. So often when we were intimate, when we had sex, when I was still in active addiction, you were compliant, you consented, but you weren't into it. 
And yes, it very much made me feel rejected. That's why when I think and talk and write about consent, that word now, I always refer to what is what is necessary, what is important as enthusiastic consent. If you have a partner that says, okay, fine, you know, you might get that immediate dopamine hit of having sex in the moment, but it's going to make you feel better, bad. God, I can't choose my words. It's going to make you feel bad in the long run. Can you imagine anything like that? That you get short-term relief from and then long-term negative consequences? Sounds a lot like addiction to me. It's the same thing that we alcoholics get from alcohol. So yeah, it definitely made me feel rejected. And now, you know, you and I, we've shared this. We talk about sex every single night. We, we don't have sex every single night, but we check in with each other and see where we are so that we can avoid the, you know, I'm going to lay here and hope that she initiates. And if she doesn't initiate it, I'm going to feel rejected. Or you, you know, maybe thinking, gosh, he snapped at me three times today. Uh, I had a stressful day. I'm tired. I went to bed a half hour before him. He's not even coming in here. And then he's going to come in here and want to have sex. And that's going to make me grumpy. So avoiding all of those things that a lack of connection causes, one way that we avoid that is by, you know, almost forced communication. I mean, we talk about it every single night. And half of the time, I'm, you know, when we talk about it, I'm anticipating what you're going to say and you're anticipating what I'm going to say because we both know each other very well at this point. But we're not shying away from the the conversation. And I think that really, really, really helps. But kind of back to this this question, this is this person's you know talking about a situation I think where active alcoholism is still in play, and so did you feel rejected and unwanted when you weren't when Sherry wasn't into it? Um, you know, I I say absolutely yes, but talk about how you felt, Sherry. Um, sorry, I wasn't quite prepared to answer hmm. since you said. Do, it do was I need to repeat be... the question? No, I was listening. Um, well, part of the question was, did you use it against her? Yeah. And that's where I feel like when my ears kind of perked up, um, yeah, I felt like it was used against me. Um, was I being, how did it make me feel when I was just complacent? I guess like I was like at least keeping an argument at bay Mm -hmm. and felt used. So... On kind of on the positive side, it was a defense mechanism to go ahead and do it rather than have to deal with me if you didn't. Yeah. And then, of course, just, yeah. Yeah. Feeling like you weren't in ownership of your own body. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. That's awful. Um, I don't think I did a lot of verbally using it against you. When you were compliant, I didn't say, gosh, we did it, but you didn't try very hard. Yeah. I don't think I did that very often, did I? No. um, Just the, uh, like, anytime there was a weekend away or we had, like, you know, a fun night, then, you know, a fun night, like, out, not, like, a fun night sexually, but a fun night out, there there was always that expectation of, oh, it was going to be a lot of sex for Matt without ever my input and my desires 
And so when that didn't happen, that's when, yes, you'd be mad and it'd be used against me. Like, you just never know how to have fun. You can't relax. You know. Let's clarify that. I And this is not, maybe it is out of insecurity. I don't know. But when you say without ever input as to what you wanted, I was always eager for your input for as what long, you wanted yeah. sexually. Right. But if, if what it you was, wanted like if I didn't was want to, have to sit on the porch and look at the stars and just enjoy each other's company, there what you know, I was I would have rushed us through that so right. that we can get on to the sex. That's yeah. what you mean when you said I didn't take your Yeah, input, or right? just flat out asking, are you interested in yeah. having sex? I did a lot of assuming. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, so didn't gaslight Sherry as it relates to, gosh, you didn't try very hard. Um, I think I knew I was walking a fine line when I felt that rejection inherent in consent when I could tell you weren't into it. I knew I was lucky getting it at all. And I I think I felt like if I pushed too hard... uh, You know, I did get mad sometimes and say, gosh, you're you're not even trying. So that did happen, for sure. Yep, Um, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't feel like I carried it on to the next day and was like, hey, last night you sure didn't try very hard. And, uh, you know, it would be kind of an in-the-moment thing. Yeah, but then I think that's... Yeah, and then that next day, perhaps, would maybe it was a day that you, under your rules, weren't going to drink, you would drink. Yeah. If it got into a bad argument. Use it as an excuse for, for drinking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For feeling rejected and then the argument. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, this is a really important topic because the reason that there was a lack of, um, like, like trying to put a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, however you're supposed to say that, was because... My alcohol create my alcoholism created so many disconnects between us in other ways. And so there was a lack of emotional intimacy. There was a lack of communication. There was a lack of partnership. And those are all things that are required, really, for both sides of the equation to have meaningful physical intimacy. But especially in in most cases for the the female, the wife, to have comfort going into intimate situations. Not all cases. Sometimes those roles definitely get reversed. But it's certainly a majority situation. And so you were being asked to do something. I mean, might have been more comfortable with a stranger. You were half mad at me most of the time. And probably the last person you wanted to be in bed with. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. You weren't anybody that I yeah, wanted to do this with because I didn't like you. Right. So sobriety didn't immediately fix it, but it allowed us to work on the relationship to the point where we became not just co-parents and a married couple, but we became eventually friends again. And you started to trust me and it allowed for that enthusiastic consent that we think is so important. I want to talk about the role of alcoholism uh, in relationships. I was doing a little research this week, Sherry, and I read an article uh, published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs 
1982 by a guy named A. Rodney Nurse. I want to give him his due. Um, and he's referencing a concept. So this is written in 1982. And he's referencing a concept by a guy named Murray Bowen from 1976 in this publication. And he's talking about the triangle in family slash relationship dynamics. And it this triangle concept fits really, really well with what you and I learned from Anna and Mitchell from We Are Recovery. They were on our Intoxicated podcast way back, episode 75, uh, under the title We Are Recovery. Anna and Mitchell talk a lot about how it was helpful to them in their relationship recovery to treat the addict as a third person in the relationship. So in other words, they had Anna, who was the uh, person recovering from <coughs> codependency, her words, not mine, uh, and the wife of Mitchell, who was recovering from addiction, and they considered there to be a third person in the relationship, the addict, so that when Anna was mad or Anna was trying to encourage change, she wasn't mad at Mitchell. She wasn't yelling at Mitchell. She was thought of herself as yelling at this third person. And you and I have really adopted that in a lot of what we talked about and in a lot of our personal experiences. We have talked about blaming the alcohol or blaming the alcoholism, not just blaming the person. What, if, from your perspective, Sherry, why is that important? Well, I think it, well, you know, we didn't really hear about that concept until we were in you know, a few years of sobriety right. recovery and recovery. Um, but it helps to, I think it helped for me to build back like trust because then I felt like I, um, could separate you from the alcohol and know that you are trustworthy. The alcohol makes you not trustworthy or you are patient. Most of the time it's not your best quality, True. but you have more patience. It's the alcoholism that made you have no patience. Um, you know, high expectations, I think, were something that alcohol made. You didn't verbalize it, but it was just almost like like we could feel it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was to keep the secret and cover up and let not let the world know what was going on behind closed doors. So kids doing well in school, like nice looking yard, you know, house is clean, we have nice cars, not fancy, fancy cars, but, you know, we like keep them up, those sort of things. Right. So I think that those were ways that it helped me separate Matt from the addiction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it kept me out of the, it helped me to stay out of the shame cycle, right? If, if when you're thinking about this disease that you're trying to recover from, you're thinking, oh, I did this and I did that and look at the damage I caused and look at the destruction over here and look at the bad relationships with my kids and um, that, that are my fault. It's really easy to just get mired in shame and locked in shame and get unable to free yourself from that. And nothing causes relapse like shame. We've talked a lot about how Self-esteem is the most important thing in recovery, regardless of which side of the fence you're on, the loved one or the alcoholic. And so doing things that 
get you stuck in that shame cycle are super, super dangerous. So for me to say, and I, I look at, I separate it even further. I look at some things I blame on alcoholism and some things I blame on alcohol because alcohol in and of itself is a toxic substance. So there are things that don't require addiction for you to blame on alcohol. Like for instance, if you, you know, overdo it uh, one time or if you haven't had that much to drink and you say something that you never would have said completely sober um, or, you know, just the the societal and cultural just worshipship that we have of alcohol. Worshipship. It's a good word. Yeah. Can you just chug that coffee? <laughs> it, you know, the, all of this is stuff that I blame on alcohol, not necessarily alcoholism, but then there's things where, you know, the the alcoholic mind, even when it's sober, it you have cravings or you have irritability or you are irrational or you your identity is tied to alcohol even when you're not consuming it. That to me is is more of something to blame alcoholism on. <clears throat> but I'm mincing, you know, I'm 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 making this more complicated than it needs to be, so let's get off of that. I just think for me, blaming that third party, whether it's the addict, as Anna and Mitchell call it, it's alcoholism or alcohol, as I like to call it, or your ability for you to separate me from this thing that caused all caused you all this pain and allow you to move slowly, very, very slowly, in the direction of trusting me. Well, Either th- way, it's an important concept. And I, th- I think that concept could be used in a lot of scenarios a disease say cancer you know yeah you're fighting the cancer you're not fighting the person who has cancer so i think that it could be fairly interchangeable for that but that separation of this disease from the person yeah yeah absolutely well a rodney nurse in 1982 and murray bowen in 1976 sure believed in this and they described it as a triangle in a relationship dynamic, you've got one partner, <clears throat> pardon me, you've got the other partner. Now, of course, these things were talked about and written in the 70s and 80s. So they were saying you've got the husband and you've got the wife. They weren't, you know, leaving room for relationships with different different gender identities, different sexual orientations. We certainly do. We or different encourage statuses people of to think of this in an open-minded way. And even if we say husband or wife or man or woman, certainly this can apply um, in any situation. Well, yeah, it doesn't even have to be a marriage, right? It can just whatever, whatever, whatever way your partnership is oriented. Um, we certainly view it in a very open-minded way in that regard. But so, so their concept is that the addiction is the third part of this triangle. Um, very similar to Anna and Mitchell. You've got, you know, let's put it in context of me and you, you've got me and you and then you know i'm yes i'm the one that brought the alcohol into the relationship but the addiction is this third leg of the stool or third piece third side of the triangle and then when the drinker goes into sobriety and starts working on recovery this is very much the case of what happened for you and i you had spent years decades being the you know, second fiddle, playing second fiddle to the alcohol and my addiction. 
And then I go into sobriety and you think, oh, he's finally going to prioritize me and the kids. And instead of doing that, I prioritized sobriety. And I did all the reading and all the writing and all the working. And I just focused all my attention on getting and staying sober. And then, you know, talking about that and continuing to bolster my sobriety through various forms of connection. How did that feel to have the addiction gone, but it just, instead of being replaced by you, it got replaced by this fixation on recovery work? Um, well, I, I mean, I guess it made me feel like, yeah, I was second, you know, second again. Um, the kids and I were not your priority and, um, yeah, it just made us feel shitty. Made me feel like, well, we're just going back into selfish mode, so. Just a different kind of selfish. Yeah. 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 Just always Matt first, Matt first, Matt first. And I kind of thought that's like how it would stay forever. And then I, it kind of made me feel like, oh, well, this is who I married. Like someone who's super selfish and super involved. Even if he says like, it's for us or for the kids or for himself, you know, which is healthy. But it just was like, oh, okay. That's who, that's how it's going to be. Because, I mean, that's all I kind of felt like I knew for yeah. so long. Even when we met, you know, certainly I doted on you and spent time, a lot of time with you. And I was actually quite a jealous early boyfriend. And so I was probably up in your business way more than you wanted. But alcohol was ever, pre- like I was, <clears throat> I was not addicted to alcohol in college. I just wasn't. But it was my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time consuming it and partying on the weekends and part, you know, weekends started on Thursday night and we drank during Monday night football and we had a few beers after we studied during the weekdays. So it was ever present. Mm-hmm. And, it, but, you know, you already saw what a priority it was in my life. And then just quickly it became the top priority when as we moved in together and as we married and as we had kids yeah and i mean i so just so for most of your time with me you were second fiddle yeah and i think like when i was describing what i was feeling like a story comes to mind about your 22nd birthday like what i was doing for you wasn't enough and you wanted to elevate it to the next level and um like stay out of town into the next bigger city um close to our college town overnight and go out and hit some of the bars over there. And, you know, I just was like, oh, so it was all about Matt. And I know it was your birthday, but what others were doing for you wasn't good enough. Now, I think that's funny because you don't even want to celebrate your birthday or acknowledge it. (laughs) But as a 22-year-old, you were all about that. And I think it was because of the thought of, Drinking at different places and being in a hotel and yeah, I think my being birthday, away from roommates. You I know, mean, maybe this is the case for everybody. I think my birthday in that case was just an excuse. Yeah, to but elevate it, the party, like you said. Yeah, but that's when I'm like, oh, so it always has been about Matt's needs. Matt's needs. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It was never about like like you wanted you didn't like want to celebrate you me, you just wanted yeah that. you just wanted it to be an I just excuse wanted a bigger party 
more yeah. more more exciting sex, bigger party. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So you've always the, we've always been in this triangle uh, situation, um, as would be described by Nurse and Bowen, and uh, just you know it went from just partying and alcohol to eventually addiction then to recovery and I want to make a, a really clear distinction when when early sobriety when in early sobriety my recovery work was taking that priority and you were still second fiddle to that you know that's I I have to say I think that's a necessity I think anyone who wants to make it over the hump to lasting recovery who has you know a, a serious addiction they're going to have to prioritize that recovery work. And so while that's not fair to you and it's not fair to the kids and it still sucks that we're in this triangle relationship and this this third thing is still taking priority, it's also necessary. If I had it to do over again, I would do the same thing. The only thing I would do different is hopefully you and I would have a better understanding that that's what we are about to go through. Yeah, and that's what I think this podcast is going to you know, highlight for people because we didn't know, you know, and I think about the times that you didn't maybe prioritize it and you were feeling sorry for yourself and you were looking for and leaning on me for support and sharing all your feelings with me. Not saying you didn't share things, but I, and you just tried to go on about your life acting like I'm just not a drinker now. Well, those failed because you didn't prioritize and you didn't, you weren't selfish enough in your early sobriety to get through those things. So I so I failed for 10 years. 10 years I would have periods of sobriety and then long-term relapses. I never had I only once had like the quick one night relapses where you fall off the, God, I'm using all the old words today that I don't like. Where I started drinking and then the next day I was like, "Nope, nope, no, no, no. Going to going to get this back under control and get back to sobriety." That only happened once. When I would quit drinking or pardon me, when I would give up on sobriety and start drinking again. It was for weeks and months yeah. or years. And so you had experienced 10 years of here's some period of weeks or months of sobriety. Then here's some period of weeks or months of drinking back and forth. So <clears throat> this last time around when I was really focusing on my recovery work and you were feeling second fiddle at the same time as feeling like, oh my God, we're still not his priority did you also feel like, but that's okay because well, I he's felt like, fallen off so many times? But, well, at that point, maybe, I was really detached. That's what I was going to say. Maybe you don't even um, care. So I was like, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, that's what I would think. Um, but then I would, I saw that you were doing some things differently. So I felt like it was different this time. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to put it into words. I just... Just other than I felt like it was different because I was watching you do something different. Yeah. And you weren't, like, happy or anything. You were... Far from it. But you also, like, you, I would see you try to come, like, share something with me and I'd let you get a couple sentences out and then you could tell, like, I don't want to hear this. Yeah. And you would, like, go away instead of trying to, like, pester me about it. And I need you. I need you to listen. I, You know. Yeah. So... I think, like I said just a few moments ago, it's. I wish that I had known how it was important to prioritize that, and I would have, you know, expected it. But then when I saw that there were results, and I thought, oh, things are different, 
You know, in the long run, looking back, I'm like, well, I'm glad it was. So with this triangle concept, uh, what uh, Nurse and Bowen are saying is the triangle stays in the relationship. You've got addiction is the third side of the triangle. And then you've got recovery. And then for us, it transitioned into thinking about and experiencing secondary addictions, at least on my part. I know I, you know, we've we've searched high and low and tried to figure out what your addictions are. And other than cats, I'm not sure you you really have any. Um, but I sure do. Uh, I I have said that I I don't even know how to talk about this one. I've said that I had a sex addiction, but my sex addiction is not like what you know when people seek treatment for sex addiction they are typically they're hiring prostitutes and they're you know engaging in other risky behaviors and lots of partners and stuff like that mine was never like that i just wanted that dopamine hit from having sex with you a lot mm-hmm. and even when there wasn't that enthusiastic consent because i didn't understand the concept even if it was the rejection inherent in consent, I still wanted it because I wanted the dopamine hit and then I'd deal with feeling bad about it later. So I don't think that's a... I'm not trying to shy away from bad behavior. I, I exhibited the bad behavior, but I'm not sure that was a true addiction transference. Um, well, maybe it was. It was a coping mechanism, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Who cares how we classify it? That's one of the things on the list of secondary addictions for me. I have forever had a tumultuous relationship with food. I have, um, you know, when even today, if you and I were to fight this afternoon and have an argument, I would tear into a bag of some kind of chip thing, a salty thing or a sweet thing, and I largely you know, try to eat whole foods and a lot of veggies and uh, a lot of clean animal proteins, a lot of the recovery nutrition stuff that we learned from Kelly Miller, who has also been on the podcast. If you want to search for Kelly Miller episodes, talks about the things we can eat that help restore our neurotransmitters after addiction. Um, So I largely try to eat as suggested by Kelly. Why are you grinning over there? I'm just laughing because you had salami yesterday. Well, <laughs> it's not necessarily clean animal protein. That's true. But but you did have radishes and hummus, and I just thought it was funny. Salami's not the end of the world. Here. I mean, And you only had fats. like six pieces. But they it tried was... to shy away from fat. I just thought that fat. was funny. Yeah. Because like, I mean, I'm not. That was all the, that was all the like, meat in the house. Yeah. So I, yeah. I mean, I, I largely follow a program that you I do. feel... You're very with, good. But when I'm not feeling good about myself, and again, this goes back to self-esteem, it doesn't necessarily have to be an argument with you. It can be stress from work. It can be whatever. It can be the $1,200 bill we got from the Colorado Department of Revenue because we did our taxes wrong four years ago and they finally bothered to send us an email or a letter about that four years later. Um, but anything like that can throw me off and uh, send me in a little bit of a food spiral. So I've always had a tumultuous relationship with food, food, using food as a coping mechanism. So that's kind of a secondary addiction. The big one, though, for me, and please 
Help me if I'm leaving anything out. But the big one is work as far as a secondary addiction. And I want to emphasize this because as we meet people through our Shout Sobriety program and as we meet the uh, loved ones of alcoholics in Echoes of Recovery, a recurring theme among people that we experience anyway who have alcohol addiction problems is that they also have work addiction problems. Or as they go into sobriety, that's when the work elevates the, the you know, compulsive need to perform. One of our, uh, someone that we work with in our nonprofit, kind of away from addiction, I love it when she describes her husband, who it sounds like has a bit of a work addiction. She, you know, when he talks about getting ready to go on vacation or something like that and you know, I couldn't possibly leave the laptop at home when I go on vacation. He works for the city and county of Denver. And she'll say to him, I don't know how the city is going to continue to operate when you're on the beach. I don't know how it's going to even happen. And so she she pokes at him. She's so sarcastic. I love it. But I know how that feels. Yeah. To be that guy that's like, you know, the world is going to come to an end if I can't answer my phone next Tuesday while we're on vacation or whatever. And it's not a particularly healthy way to look at things. Well, and it's, I think it's not only is it like getting a performance review and feel like you're accomplishing something, it's also a distraction and a way to, you know, distract your cravings or avoid a cravings or you're like, oh, you can trick your mind to say, oh, I'm working so I can't be drinking. Like, I've got to get this project done. And I think there are a lot of people that do that, not only because they get a charge from like doing well, you know, the accolades from doing well, which is great, but it's, I think it's also a avoidance distraction. There's so much in what you just said. A lot of the people that we meet, myself included, it, it even transcends like accolades, like I just need to get a certain amount of stuff done so that I feel good about myself, whether anyone else in the world recognizes it or not. It might start out... What's that? Because most of the time they don't. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Nobody else cares. It might start out as a boss assigns you a project and you have to get the project done, but eventually it becomes very self-like... A goal, like Narcissistic-ish... Or you, you know, you're feeling accomplished, and you're, that's the thing that makes you feel proud. Because but if you know, I eventually, don't, if I don't get it done, then I won't feel accomplished. Right, and I think that that kind of makes sense when you're thinking about, oh, look how well you did in school, and blah blah blah, and your your teachers and your parents are giving compliments, and then you're, um, you know, new on the job, and maybe you have a boss who is complimentary, and mm-hmm. or coworkers, and like, wow, he gets so much stuff done. So that becomes who you are. It's kind of an identity, and then within that identity, I think it builds up. Like, if I don't get this much done, then I am not, you know, I am not who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And the the longer you go and let it build, the more your chores are, the more your daily tasks are, yeah. the more hours you have to work in the day to like feel. Even just internally accomplished. That's right. That's right. Well, feeling internally accomplished because of this external thing, whether it it doesn't have to be an accolade, it it can just be a check mark on the to-do list. Yeah. I mean, people get charges out of that, right? Like if they have a to-do list, they can just... Yep. Absolutely. The other thing that you said was, I can't drink until I get this done. 
we alcoholics often transcend that as well and get to a point where we recognize alcohol to be a stimulant before it's a depressant. There's all kinds of science on this. This isn't me just making this up. Mm -hmm. But alcohol is a complicated toxin and it does give us a second wind to get through the end of the day. I know when I, you know, when we owned our bakery, for instance, I only on really, really bad, awful, awful times did I have anything in like my coffee cup at the bakery. Maybe, you know, less than one, than you can count on one hand times did that ever happen. So that wasn't, that didn't become a, a, you know, systemic problem. But I often, when I would do paperwork for the bakery at home or computer work for the bakery at home, I often drank while I did that. And I would say, woe is me. I got to that bakery at 4 a.m. And here I am at 7 p.m. And I'm still working. I deserve this. Easy justification. But not only did I deserve it, but it also would give me a second wind and give me a little bit of stimulation to finish whatever it was I was getting done. And then a lot of alcoholics eventually carry that in well. If it can give me a second wind at 7, I bet it can give me a second wind at 3. I bet at noon it could give me a second win, and then you you know we meet a lot of people who end up drinking all day as a result of that. But what alcohol does do for other, you know, in other kind of circumstances or other angles on this, is it signals our brain that we can stop working and go into relax mode. So if I was to combine drinking with sitting in a comfortable chair in front of television. That would be enough stimulus to tell my brain, okay, we're done working for the day. We are in relax mode now. And when we hit that early sobriety period, we don't have anything to to do that. Sitting down and trying to relax without that substance, it isn't enough of a signal. And so we might just say, well, I'm going to get one more thing done for work. And then that kind of perpetuates itself and pretty soon... You've transferred addiction to alcohol into addiction to work and you're working all hours and you're working late hours. And even when you're not working, you're thinking about work because nothing has given your brain that off signal. Mm. Did you, have you witnessed that through me? Like, have you seen it secondhand or was it so gradual that you couldn't even notice it? Um, I think it was so gradual over time that I didn't really notice it, but you know, I, I recognize it now for sure. Yeah. Like, ugh. you know, there was lots of times where in early sobriety that I felt like you were using it as an excuse or a, a way to not, you know, deal with the family or your downtime. You didn't want to let your mind rest. You know, and I didn't ever on a conscious level say, I want to do this so that I can not deal with the family. Yeah, I don't think that's how it happens. It's very compulsive. It's very similar to the compulsive, you know, gnawing desire to drink. There'll be something and I'll be like, look, this is, this is not a, a part of work that I enjoy. This is a nagging thing. This is a, I got to, I got to deal with this problem and get it done and I absolutely have to get it done today because I will not be, I don't want to lose sleep over it. I just want to finish this, you know, gnarly turd and be done with it. And it very much feels like if I were to leave that till tomorrow, uh, like I just couldn't do it. So there, there's a very compulsive 
um, aspect to this that's very similar to addiction. And so that's why it it feels so natural for us alcoholics and former alcoholics when these secondary addictions replace that third side of the triangle. And in this, you know, it, the secondary addiction can be anything. We, we know a lot of people for whom it becomes video games, other uh, technology stuff. Um, we have a good number of people that we've gotten to know for whom shopping becomes that secondary addiction. Exercise. Exercise. For many, it's a combination of these things. You know, compulsivity around exercise and compulsivity around work. And there's your kind of... There's your new stew stirred up nice and hot for you to fill that necessary third leg of the triangle. So, you know, it starts out that blaming the alcohol, blaming the addiction, blaming the addict, as Anna and Mitchell would say, that's a positive thing. It gets you out of the shame cycle. It gives you some place to put your anger and allows you to heal and recover. But eventually, that third side of the triangle it is like a, a thing that won't go away. And and that first, start, you know, again, when you're in early recovery, I'm not going to make any apologies for myself or anyone else who really emphasizes the importance of doing the recovery work, even at the expense of their family. That's just how it is. You played with fire and now you got to heal from that. But then, you know, you get to the point where you should be able to let that go. You should be able to get rid of that third side of the triangle and just be you and your spouse or partner and just just enjoying each other and working on each other and enjoying and nurturing the family but you can't let go of that third side you just have to keep replacing it and for me and many it's secondary addictions and then you know as I became more aware I still work too much but I'm working on getting away from that like I'm doing active active effort is being made I've changed some things. I've walked away from some things that have been my responsibilities. I have made commitment to walk away from some other things. You're holding I think that's a better four. I think that's a better way to describe it. You've made a commitment to walk away from some things. Four things. No, that's four months when two of your big things are done. <laughs> two and four and a half months. Well, I was all like, some people give two weeks notice, I give a little more. Yes, now yes, you're what you're the things you're walking away from are are of, you know, sub- subsidence, like they're substantial. So you're allowing for transition and you're, you're filling out your commitment, but, but you're not re-upping. I just think that's kind of funny. Yeah. Oh, and the it one is. thing that you're wanting to give away was something that you tried really hard to pass on to me, but you couldn't quite like pass it on. Yeah. <laughs> I did? Yeah. Okay. I can't, I, we'll talk later. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so um yeah, so I am so I'm addressing my, you know, and I feel like all the other secondary like the food relationship, I feel good about that. I don't beat myself. If if I have a day, bad day and I didn't get enough sleep and I eat a bag of chips, I don't give a shit. That's fine. That is acceptable in my mind. Um and so my relationship with food is much better. It's really the work thing that I'm still working on, but I'm addressing it. So then, you know, the that third side of the triangle starts to kind of get blurry because there's nothing over there to be working on. And so then I've noticed that you and I are spending a lot more time on kids' issues of late. Now, 
we've had kids for 21 years and they've always had issues. It's just that when I was actively drinking, we didn't, you know, this is horrible to say, we didn't focus on their issues. We were too busy dealing with my drinking and the gaslighting and the evil things. And then we were too busy dealing with the recovery and all, the kids' issues were always there. We were just focused elsewhere. And now that the elsewhere has cleared up, we seem to have a lot more time to focus on the kids. What's your reaction? Is that a fair way to describe that? Well, I don't know. I I feel like I focused on the kids. Mm-hmm. And I think you have a tendency to fill in a gap with a worry anywhere. And you have said that to me. So that's not new information to you. Correct. And now, I feel like now that you've taken interest in addressing some issues with the kids, you're pulling me into making it a third person in the relationship. Third side of the triangle. A third side of the triangle. And when... Because I feel like, oh, well, now he's paying attention to some things, so maybe we'll get some things cleared up. Um, And then you read this article and you brought it to me. And I thought, you know, when we had, like, something happen recently and you talked about it and I was trying to be super proactive and you were, like, a little bit like, well, I know you've got this busy thing coming up, blah, blah, blah. We don't have to, like, start right away. I felt like you were going to lose interest if I wasn't showing interest. So I jumped on it. And now I feel like I'm getting pulled into you're obsessing about this. You're making this this worry and this concern. And I'm sure that whatever it is that is the third leg of the triangle or the third side of the triangle, we all can like justify why it's okay to have that be part of our relationship mm-hmm. um I feel like now I'm getting looked at like because I am a mother and I am concerned and worried about things that I feel like you're judging me that I am over exaggerating the issues but I feel like I started to jump on it because it was this one instance was the second time that we had had this occurrence and that I feel like you're judging me, acting like now I'm obsessing about it. And I don't feel like I'm obsessing about it. I feel like the last few weeks there have just been lots of changes going on in the house. And, you know, just getting ready to go, everybody go back into back their to school, school. Back to college, moving back, back to college, out to college. All that. Yep. So it's just all like the feelings they have, the feelings I have. It just is kind of a muddly mess. And this one issue is presenting a little bit of a challenge with going back to school. So I feel like, yeah, I just feel like now you read that article and you're like, oh, well, now she's really over obsessing about it. So when you were saying we are focusing on the kids, I have always been trying to focus on the kids a little bit. And maybe because you're interested, I'm upping my interest a little bit into really doing some things because I don't want to lose your momentum. Does that make sense? Um, 90% of what you just said really hits home. 
I think when we talk about my secondary addictions, I think your secondary addiction, your only addiction has always been the kids. And I think that's natural. I think that's the way, you know, put in here whatever you want to put in here. The way the universe, the way God intended. I think that there, I mean, there has been studies done that show that once a woman has been pregnant, a... And given birth. I think it's just pregnant, but maybe it's given birth. I can't remember. But, okay, let's say given birth. Once a woman is given birth, a nurturing hormone starts being released in her brain, and that becomes priority one. And so there's science behind this now. Our experience in working with other people, there's a ton of evidence from working with other people that you just have this nurturing instinct that makes the kids your top priority for for me you are my top priority for you the kids are your top priority and we see that a lot this isn't yeah. just you and me so so yeah so when i'm talking about workaholism and my weird relationship with food and i all of that the thing that has always been there for you has been the prioritization of the kids so yes i can totally see where now that i've freed up all my shit and I'm looking for something else to focus on because I've got this triangular relationship and I can't not have anything to focus on. I've got to have something that I am fixated on some of the issues with the kids, whereas you always have been. And that was an insult for me to have insinuated that you weren't always because you always have been. Well, You're right. You were managing all of that while also dealing with me and dealing with addiction-related issues. I think that... The part that you maybe you haven't said yet on the podcast here, but you said to me was that this guilt and worry that I carry it to the relationship about the kids. And I think that just goes back also a lot to the relationship during alcoholism. I do have a lot of guilt and worry. I do feel like that if I'm not doing want something for one of the kids that I'm, you know, if I'm doing something special for one of the kids, like, I worry that I'm giving a signal like I don't care about them as much. Like the other ones. Yeah. Like you feel like you're showing favorites. Yeah. Yeah. So I see how that, you know, can make it seem like I'm obsessing about it and the, and the worry and the concern and the guilt and that I'm just not living in the present with them can make it seem like I'm obsessing about it. Well, I think whenever something is your priority, you're going to have some obsessive and some compulsive relationship to it. So it doesn't concern me that you think, you know, we can be, here's a good example. We can, it can be like three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm like, you know, where's Andrew, our youngest? And you're like, oh my God, he's been here and here and he's been in these five places and you're just now wondering where he is. And that makes me feel a little bit bad, but I know you always know exactly where the kids are. Like they never fall out of front of mind for you. And I look at that and say, that's a beautiful thing. I am blessed to be in relationship with someone that is always prioritizing the kids because that's a part of keeping them safe. And so 
I think a lot of your relationship with this is really, really, really rooted and positive. The concern that I have is just like I can't go back and undrink times when I drank and I can't change the impact that my alcoholism had on you and the kids. And so living, staying stuck in that space is not healthy. I just think the same thing for you. It makes perfect sense that the thing that you prioritize, you would feel some guilt and some, get get in a little bit of a cycle, a guilt cycle there. But I just would encourage you to to give yourself some grace and say, hey, what's done is done. As Maya Angelou says, when we know better, we do better. And you're the best mom I know. So the idea that you aren't going to make the best possible decision going forward never enters my mind. And the things that have happened in the past are in the past. But, you know, here I am with this obsessive compulsive relationship with work. And I often think of the things I've done work-wise that I regret or things I should have done different decisions I should have made, things I should have worded differently. So I get it. I get it. I just... When I talk about this third side of the triangle, I think that negative relationship we have with these things that occupy that space is the part we need to get away from. Yeah, and Does I'm, that make sense? Yeah, and I'm working really hard on that. Like, you helped yesterday by allowing me to have more time with one of our children. And then I felt a sense of relief because... You know, I said, this is what he needs right now. And this is, you know, just one day. And so then I was able to not feel guilty, you know? Yeah. I didn't feel like I was neglecting. Yeah, I just... I, anyone. I think it comes... Here's what I think it comes down to. So I thought... Well, I just want to say... I, so I thought about what you said um, oh, about this, you know, what we're talking about, this third leg of the relationship um, and and I do have a tendency to worry and have more concern and more guilt about and, things than probably what I and should. all four of them are alive as a result of that yeah. so there's a good side to it too there's there's also probably you know how how can you find the perfect mix right I mean you're gonna overdo it sometimes and and have to work to pull back a little bit I think I just think we have to recognize the fact that we're in midlife, we're in our young 50s, and our kids are, half of them are grown, the other half are getting close, and we've been through, you know, the battlefield um, of addiction, and we've come out the other side of that, like, we, we've, we've made it through a lot of stuff. And whatever the next thing is, we're going to make it through that too. And whatever the thing after that is, we're going to make it through that too. And so, you know, feeling like anything is the end of the world, I think is just uh, a waste of time. And I think one of the benefits or blessings of maturity, especially after you've overcome something challenging is you should be able to look at your track record and say, look, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, we're not 
we are never going to be rich, but we're also not going to run out of money. And, you know, we are never going to, um, I don't know. The point is, we're always going to face challenges, but we're always going to make it through. And we can't predict the future because God knows every time we try to do that, uh, what actually happens has nothing to do with what we had planned for to happen. But if we just kind of do our best and follow the way the wind blows, we're going to be okay. And that applies to the kids as well. And so trying to erase that third side of the triangle, I think, is really important. That doesn't mean I'm asking you to not care about the kids anymore. <clears throat> I just think we, we have this kind of doomsday thing. There's always something on the third side of that triangle that's this big, terrible monster hiding under the bed that's about to jump up and eat us. And for much of our life together, it really was. It really was a monster that was going to eat us. But the monster's gone. And so our next challenge is to recognize that the monster's gone and be thankful that the monster's gone and know that, you know, whatever happens, um, we can we can overcome it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly, yeah. Ish. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to... But you know that a two-legged stool can't stand, so... Well, that's why it's a triangle, not a... I think I made a stool reference once, and then I was like, oh, stop doing that. These are sides of a triangle, not legs of a stool. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. What do you think Nurse and Bowen would think about the three-legged stool? Can't imagine they're both still alive. Otherwise, we could... Maybe they are. I don't know. My God. 76 wasn't that long ago. I mean... Who knows? Yeah. But by the time you're writing papers, you're probably years. in your 50s 80s, or 60s. Yeah. So. Well, maybe. Maybe yeah. they were super smart. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nurse and Bowen, for your insight and allowing us to have this conversation. And thank you, Sherry, for being the awesome mother that you are. I'm glad your compulsivity and obsessive behavior is that toward our kids. That makes it sound like I'm a lunatic. You're but not I'm a lunatic. Not. No, just fringe compulsivity and obsessiveness. It's good. Like I said. Worry and guilt. Worry and guilt. Okay. Well. That's what mothers, are, I guess, are meant to do. Yeah. Hope you can free yourself from that a little bit because you deserve it. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.